Welcome to the Sunday School lesson from Joelton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills. I'm glad you could be with us today. We are continuing with our study from the Nazarene Quarterly, and today our lesson is coming from August 2nd, and it's titled, The Experience of Rest. The Experience of Rest. But before we get into the lesson, let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day that you've given us. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word and to learn from you. And we ask that your spirit would be here with us today, that you would anoint our hearts, Lord, and help us to understand and to, to grasp whatever it is that you have for us. And we'll give you the praise in your name. Amen. I want to begin with the story of King Amaziah. Amaziah was the king of Judah. Now, you remember, by this time, Israel had split into the northern kingdom, which kept the name Israel, and the southern kingdom, which took the name Judah. Now, Judah was led by the descendants of David. They had some good kings, some bad kings, and some were kind of just in the middle. Israel was led by a series of bad kings, wicked kings. Well, Amaziah is a pretty decent king of Judah. And he goes to war with Edom. Now, he doesn't think he has enough men in his army. So he hires 100,000 men from Israel to help him out. And he pays them 100 talents of silver. But before he goes to war, a prophet from the Lord comes to him and says, Don't take these men of Israel with you. Uh, Israel is a wicked nation. They have left God. God is not with them. And if you take them with you, it will not please God. And Amaziah said to the prophet, Well, what about the money that I've already spent to hire these men? And the prophet tells him something very insightful. He says, God can give you much more than this. Now, Amaziah, as I said, was a fairly decent king. And he listens to the prophet. He sends the men from Israel back to their home. And he goes to war with just his army. And he has success. He is able to defeat uh, the land of Edom. But there's a problem. The Bible tells us that the men that he had sent home from Israel, they were furious with Judah, and they departed for home in a great rage. When Amaziah comes back from his victory, he finds that these men from, from Israel had gone on to plunder numerous towns in Judah. They had conquered these towns. They had taken people captive. They had stolen a great deal of plunder. In fact, over 3,000 of the citizens were killed. And so Amaziah comes back from his victory over Edom to face really a 9-11 of his own. 3,000 of his citizens were killed. Now, he has to be wondering why. You remember the prophet had told him, God can give you much more than this. So why had God let this happen? The wicked men of Israel were flourishing. Amaziah had done the right thing, and yet he was suffering for it. So we have to ask ourselves, what do we do when we see the wicked prosper? while the righteous remain oppressed or beaten down. That's the focus of our lesson today. And so from our lesson, we learn 
God shows us how we can cultivate rest in God. God wants us to be confident in Him. He wants us to know that when He tells us the righteous will be blessed and the wicked will be destroyed, we can know that this will happen. No matter what's going on around us, we can trust that God will make things right. So today's lesson tells us what to do when all around you the wicked are prospering while it doesn't seem like that it pays to be righteous. Our lesson text comes from Psalm 37, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. But the psalmist gives us an answer to this question. We are going to look now at how this uh, answer is given. The psalmist begins by telling us how not to respond when the wicked prosper. He says, don't do three things. Don't fret, don't be envious, and don't become angry. Then the psalmist goes on to tell us what we should do when we see the wicked prosper. We should remain faithful in obedience to God, and we should find our joy and delight in God Himself. And the psalmist concludes by saying, we must embrace meekness and allow God to be God. So let's begin. Part 1, how not to respond when the wicked prosper. So we are told to avoid three things, fretting, becoming envious, and becoming angry. Psalms 37.1 says, Do not fret because of those who do evil. Fretting actually comes from an old English word, which is used to describe an animal that's gnawing over bones. And so the idea of fretting is to constantly feel worry or anxiety, to allow something to eat at you, to let something get under your skin. In fact, it's used in the Old Testament to describe a type of leprosy. There's a fretting leprosy, something that eats away, that corrodes. We fret when we know something should be true. It should happen like it's supposed to. But we have a lingering fear. It won't happen. It won't turn out right. Uh, I have to take my mother to the doctor for monthly visits. And every month, the doctor refills her prescriptions, which are very important for her. Now, the doctor does this by sending in an order on the computer. And I know the doctor has sent the prescription in to the pharmacy, but every month for two or three days between the time when we see the doctor and between the time when the pharmacy actually tells us the medicines are ready, there's always a kind of fretting on my part, a worry that something will go wrong. The computer will mess up, the message won't get through, that she won't be able to get her medicine. And so this is the idea of fretting, that we know it should be this way, but we feel like it won't be. So we fret about what God has promised us. And when we do this, what we're really saying is we don't trust God. We're telling God what you told me isn't true. I'm afraid it won't be true. The second thing we're told not to do is to be envious. Psalm 37.1 concludes by saying, Don't be envious of those who do wrong. Envy is a, a discontent, a resentful longing, that's aroused by someone else's possessions, qualities, or luck. 
So envy is the idea that I'm wondering why others have, and you can put anything you want to in the blank there, why others have this, and I don't. Why them and not me? Why are they succeeding, but I'm not? Now, what makes envy so deadly is we resent others for having something that we cannot. We even get to the point where we want to see it taken away from them. In fact, we see envy leading to the first murder in the Bible. You remember the story of Cain and Abel. Now, Cain was the firstborn. He was the one also who followed in his father's footsteps. Cain was one who tilled the ground. You remember Adam began as a farmer taking care of the Garden of Eden. Cain followed those footsteps, but Abel did not. Abel became a shepherd. But when the sacrifices were made, Abel's sacrifice took precedence. His sacrifice was accepted and Cain's was not. We can hear Cain protesting, saying, This is not the way it's supposed to be. I'm the older son. I'm the son who's following in my father's footsteps. Why should Abel get acceptance of God before me? This is not fair. Now, we know the rest of that story, how Cain actually rises up and kills Abel. Now, the third thing that we are to avoid is anger. Psalm 37 verse 8 says, Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Now, anger doesn't have to be wrong. But in this case, the anger comes from the feeling that we have been mistreated, that we have been wronged. We shouldn't be treated in this way. And Scripture warns us time after time how dangerous these responses can be. Proverbs 14.30 says, Envy makes the bones rot. Proverbs 27.4, Anger is cruel and fury overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? Proverbs 30.33, For as churning cream produces butter, and as twisting the nose produces blood, So stirring up anger produces strife. The question becomes why? Why are these actions so dangerous? And the psalmist tells us these actions are dangerous because they lead only to evil. In other words, there are no positives to these behaviors. They never produce helpful results. It's not the case of sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. These actions and attitudes always damage us. They can lead only to evil. And there are two main reasons for this. First, they lead to evil because they open the door to Satan. They provide an opportunity for Satan to work, to wreak havoc in your life. You remember when Cain was jealous of Abel, the Lord said to him, But if you do not do what is right, Sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. That's Genesis 4, verse 7. So the picture we get is sin as a hungry predator waiting for its opportunity to pounce. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 tells us, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So Paul warns us, when we become angry, we open the door. We give opportunity to the devil. 
we allow Satan an inroad into our lives, and he takes full advantage of this. Now, these things allow Satan to work in our lives. This fretting and envy and anger, all of them work because they come from a lack of faith in God. We're showing God we don't trust him to do what he said. We don't quite believe his promises. Now, Satan's only weapon is his ability to deceive. Satan is not all-powerful like God is. Satan can't overwhelm you by his power. Satan has to blind you through deception. When we have no doubts whatsoever about God's goodness, his power, his trustworthiness, Satan really has no way to get at us. Whatever he says, we can dismiss it. But when we fret, when we are envious of others, when we become angry, we are allowing doubts about God to creep in. We're stopping to consider what Satan is telling us, and the door begins to open. We are letting Satan loose to work in our lives. And once Satan is entered, he wreaks total destruction. Our delusion is to think that we can keep Satan under control. We can allow him to go so far, but no farther. But we are fooling ourselves. We're fooling ourselves when we think we can indulge in fretting, in envy, in anger, and then stop when we want to. The reality, once these become part of our lives, they burn out of control. We find ourselves doing things we never thought that we would do. We feel like we can keep Satan on a leash. We can keep these attitudes under, under control. But the psalmist warns us very clearly, these things lead only to evil. In Galatians 5.19, Paul gives us a list of the acts of the flesh. And he goes through a whole series of evil actions. But they fall into two main categories. There are sins dealing with sexual immorality. And then there are sins that are associated with envy, things like hatred and jealousy and discord and fits of rage. Later in Ephesians 4.31, Paul says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. In these verses, Paul is telling us a great truth. He's telling us these sins don't exist in isolation. Sin travels in packs. Each sin introduces another. When we practice one sin, it allows another to flourish and take root. So envy produces bitterness, which leads to anger, which causes malice. And we can go on and on. What we see is a nuclear reaction. You know, in a nuclear reaction, you begin with one atom that splits apart. And its pieces then smash into other atoms, which cause them to split apart. And their pieces smash into even more atoms. And what you get is a chain reaction and eventually a nuclear explosion. Sin has the same effect. One sin produces another. These two produce even more. And, and finally, we have an atomic blast of sin in our lives. So these reactions of fretting, of envying, of anger, they lead only to evil because we become convinced that whatever we do in response is justified. 
Ed Welch has a quote that I like. He says, the more extreme our anger, the more confident we are that we are right. You know, we begin to feel justified in committing horrible acts because we feel we have a right to our anger, to our envy. Uh, we feel that we are justified in this. One of the ways we see this is in the epidemic of school shootings that we've seen over the past decades. Peter Langman, a, a psychiatrist, he writes, Many people assume school shooters target peers who have picked on them, but this is rarely the case. Few shooters kill anyone who has harassed them. Rather, shooters are more likely driven by envy rather than by revenge. And he goes on to describe uh, what several shooters have told us in their own words. Uh, Dylan Klebold, who was one of those who attacked Columbine High School, he wrote in his journal, I see jocks having fun and friends and women. I hate the happiness that they have. And later on, uh, Sung Hoo Choi, he was a shooter at Virginia Tech University. He wrote, criticizing students he saw as stuck up, Oh, the happiness I could have had mingling among you hedonists, being counted as one of you. And so we can see the effects of envy on our lives. But we are not powerless. We can resist these emotions. Notice the psalmist tells us this as a command. He says, do not fret, do not be envious, refrain from anger. So the psalm makes it clear, we have a choice whether we respond to, to this temptation or not. Viktor Frankl writes, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose. God has given us a great gift in giving us the power of a free will. We say things like, oh, you make me so angry. But the truth is, we always have the power to choose, to choose whether to be angry or not, to choose whether to be envious or not. However, this is easier said than done. Many times we recognize we shouldn't be responding with anger or with envy. We realize we are only harming ourselves when we do these things. But in the heat of the moment, it just feels so good to do it. It's like scratching an itch. We know that when we scratch, it's only going to make us itch worse. But in the moment, it's hard to resist. But Romans 12.2 provides us with an answer. Paul says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The pattern of this world is to envy, to fret, to become angry. But God can transform us through the renewing of our minds. And there's three key techniques or strategies that God uses. First of all, we need to learn to take an eternal point of view rather than focusing on the immediate. Another strategy is learning to join God in laughing at the wicked. And finally, we have the strategy of allowing gratitude to guard our souls. So let's look for a moment at these three strategies. First, we need to learn to see things as God sees them. From God's point of view, any success, prosperity that the wicked enjoy is extremely temporary. 
It's over in the blink of an eye. From the perspective of eternity, what the wicked achieve is insignificant. This psalm, Psalm 37, tells us, Like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. A little while, and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. So, we can see, from God's perspective, this is just an insignificant amount of time. Gloria Furman writes, When the mundane looms larger than eternal life, we forget who God is, who we are. So the psalmist tells us, When you see the wicked prospering, don't let it get under your skin. Realize this is only a momentary blip in our true lives, our eternal lives. The second strategy we can use is to learn to join God in laughing at the wicked. When we see the wicked as God sees them, we learn to laugh, to see them as silly rather than powerful, to see their prideful arrogance as a joke, to see small, weak men imagining themselves to be the masters of the universe. They're strutting around full of their self-importance, but we can see them as God sees them. And we can laugh. Psalm 37, verses 12 and 13. The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. Psalm 2, verses 1 and then verse 4. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord has them in derision. And then Psalm 37, 13 says... The Lord laughs at the wicked. David Mathis wrote an article called, God Laughs Out Loud to Quiet Our Fears. And in this article, he tells us, Laughter is a nonverbal form of communication. According to the magazine Psychology Today, laughter is a highly sophisticated social signaling system. In other words, Laughter is a way in which we send messages to others. Think of a laugh track on a TV sitcom. Whoever made that TV show wants you laughing at particular points. And so they include laughter to send the signal to you, hey, this is funny. And when we hear the laughter, many times we find it funny. So when God laughs, he's doing it for our sakes. He's communicating a message to us. God laughs to dispel our fears. God laughs to remind us no purpose of His can be thwarted. So we can laugh at the wicked because we know that their power, that their strength, it's a bluff, it's a charade. We know what their final end will be. When we laugh at the wicked, our laughter signals confidence in God. We see this clearly in Psalm 52. In this psalm, the psalmist writes, Why do you boast of evil, you mighty hero? Surely God will bring you down. He will snatch you up. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous will see and fear. They will laugh at you, saying, Here now is the man who did not make God his stronghold, but trusted in his great wealth and grew strong by destroying others. St. Thomas More writes, the devil, the proud spirit, cannot endure to be mocked. 
And Martin Luther writes, This devil is conquered by despising and mocking him, not by resisting and arguing. Uh, God's derisive laughter. It should free us to be the hardest people on earth to intimidate and impress. You know, of all people, we should be the ones to be the least impressed with the foolishness, with the weakness of the world around us. And I like this as a quote. Uh, what I just told you was a quote, and then the author follows it up by saying, Since we know that the devil is the father of lies, a paper tiger whose only real weapon is deception, we should be the first to laugh at him. A third strategy we can use is to use gratitude as the guardian of our souls. We fret, we become envious, we become angry when we feel like we aren't getting what we deserve, that life is not fair. If we can remind ourselves of all that we do have, of what God has done for us, if we can be reminded of the thousands of blessings that we don't deserve, it clears these other things from our mind. So gratitude acts as a guardian because it forces us to change where we are looking. We are focusing our attention on our hurts and our disappointments. Gratitude focuses us on what we have, on what God has done for us, what God has given to us. Once we begin to practice gratitude, we can plainly see God has done far more for us than we have any right to expect. In Psalm 69, the psalmist says, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. To magnify is to enlarge, to make bigger. When we look at this, though, we should ask, why does the psalmist use these words? It's impossible for us to magnify God. God is already the greatest. We can't add anything to God. So what does the psalmist mean when he says, I will magnify God when I praise him? John Piper writes, When David says, I will magnify God with thanksgiving, he does not mean, I will make God look bigger than he really is. He means, I will make a big God begin to look as big as he really is. So we are not enlarging God. We are enlarging our view of God. God is already the ultimate, the greatest. But gratitude helps us to see that. You know, a telescope is used to view something far away in its true grandeur. We magnify it so that we can see it in its accurate size to make it look as big as it really is. And that's what Thanksgiving does for us. Now, in part one of the psalm, we saw how we should not respond when we see the wicked prosper. We shouldn't fret, we shouldn't envy, we shouldn't become angry. In part two of this psalm, the psalmist tells us how we should respond. And he tells us to do two things. First, we have to continue to live in obedience and faithfulness. And second, we have to find our joy and satisfaction in God himself. First, we continue to live in faithfulness. The psalmist tells us, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Stephen Cole writes that trust in the Lord 
is an action slogan. This is not a passive response. When we trust, it requires us to take action. We continue to live out a life of obedience, following the life of righteousness that's set out in Scripture. Now, David knew what this was like. He knew what it was like to see the wicked prosper. As a young man, he had been anointed by Samuel. He had been told, you will be the next king. But instead of becoming king, David spends a number of years running for his life, living in caves. Finally, he has to flee the land itself and go to live with the Philistines. All this time, Saul is living in the palace, living the life of a king. But David continued to trust. He trusted God would carry out his promise, no matter how much the wicked Saul seemed to prosper. In fact, on two occasions, David had the chance to take matters into his own hands to kill Saul, but instead he chose to wait to allow God to work in his time. Now, we are told David was a man after God's own heart. And usually when we hear this, we take this to be a description of how much David loves God, of David's passion for his God, you know, the passion we see in the Psalms. But it's interesting, this is not what the Scripture means. In 1 Samuel 13, 14, Samuel is telling Saul that he will lose the kingdom and that God has chosen another. Specifically, the Lord hath sought a man after his own heart. And then in Acts, it says, After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. So we can see David was a man after God's own heart because he continued in obedience to God. He did everything God wanted him to do. Now, if you were going to describe David's life, where would you start? You know, would you describe David as the great military hero, uh, David as the great musician, the one who writes all of these psalms, David as one of the greatest kings of Israel? It's interesting for us to read in Acts 13 how Peter sums up David's life. He writes, David served his own generation by the will of God and fell asleep. That's it. That's all he says. In God's view, all of the accomplishments of David weren't what was ultimately important. In the end, what made David so unique was he was obedient. He served his own generation by the will of God. Our job, when we see the wicked achieving prosperity and fame and success, our job is to continue to serve our generation by the will of God to be faithful, to continue in what he has called us to do. Paul puts it very plainly. He says, do not become weary in doing good. And he must have considered this to be important because he tells it to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 6, and then he repeats it to the Thessalonians. When our efforts at doing good seem to be going nowhere, when we see the wicked get ahead through their evil schemes, it's easy to become discouraged. But Paul tells us, don't become weary, keep on doing good, keep following righteousness, trust God. So, 
when the wicked prosper, we should respond by continuing to trust, continuing to obey. But the psalmist also tells us we should prosper by finding our joy and satisfaction in God himself. Verse 4 says, Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. In the Septuagint version, the Greek version of the Old Testament, it translates it as, Indulge thyself with delight in the Lord. To indulge is to allow yourself to enjoy the pleasure of something. To allow yourself to be taken over by delight. To give wholeheartedly to this delight. And you know, a lot of times we think of indulging ourselves with some kind of decadent dessert. You know, some kind of death by chocolate cake, so to speak. Well, Stephen Cole writes, When we delight ourselves in the Lord, we are captivated with the Lord, with all that He is. And so we admire God we delight in our admiration of Him. We see all the ways in which He can be admired. So the psalmist tells us, take delight. The psalmist makes it plain that this is a choice that we make. Now the question becomes, why? Why do I have to choose to delight? You know, I don't have to choose to enjoy triple chocolate cake. You put a piece in front of me, I'm going to enjoy it. I don't have to stop and think, well, do I want to enjoy this or not? So how can I find myself not delighting in God? Why does it take a conscious effort on my part, a decision on my part to delight in God? Well, first, I may keep myself from delighting because I stuff myself with other things. You know, if I fill myself up with other foods, if I stuff myself to the brim, even with vegetables, I do not want the triple chocolate cake. And so a lot of times we fail to delight in God because we've stuffed ourselves with lesser things. We've loaded up on things that don't satisfy, that won't satisfy, until our souls are stuffed and we've lost all appetite. Another reason why we sometimes have to make the choice to delight is because of inertia. Now, inertia is a physics term which describes the tendency of objects to remain as they are. As Sir Isaac Newton said, objects at rest remain at rest, objects in motion remain in motion. So we can see from the world around us, things have a tendency just to stay the way they are. And so often it's easier for us to do nothing even if we're not really enjoying doing nothing, but we're unwilling to break out of our laziness. There are things that can bring us intense pleasure, but only after we put in an initial amount of work. For example, playing the piano. Lots of people find great joy in playing the piano, but it took a lot of hours of practice to get them to that point. When we look at a stick of dynamite, we see an example of activation energy. You know, dynamite explodes, and when it does, it releases tremendous energy. But dynamite doesn't explode without help. You have to put energy into it by setting off a blasting cap. You have to do this first before you get any energy out of it. But if you invest that small amount of energy, you release a huge amount of energy. 
So when we make the effort to know God, to taste and see that the Lord is good, then we begin to experience great delight in God. And this delight comes about only when we've abandoned ourselves fully to God. When we've made the effort and commitment, God will be the most valuable thing in our lives. So from this psalm, we've seen how not to respond when the wicked prosper. We're not to fret. We're not to envy. We're not to become angry. And we've seen how we should respond. We should continue to be faithful, to obey, and we should learn to delight in God himself. The psalmist goes on to tell us why. Why should we react in these ways? And it's because, ultimately, God will make us vindicated. God will make everything right. The psalmist says, He will make your righteous rewards shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Now, vindication is proof that someone or something is right, reasonable, or justified. So, we're vindicated when God proves that our faith in Him is justified. We are vindicated. We are proven to be right when we trusted in God. Now, God's Word makes promise after promise that God blesses those who seek Him and He punishes those who are disobedient. Now, our world tells us, believe that and you're a sucker. Nice guys finish last. But the psalmist is telling us, when you see the wicked flourishing all around you, when they lie and cheat and steal and they seem to be rewarded with success, don't fret, don't be envious, don't become angry. Be still, wait for the Lord, and in the end, you will be vindicated. God will deliver on His promises. In Romans, Paul writes, Let God be true and every man a liar. What Paul is telling us, no matter how many men say that God is wrong, no matter how many men tell us that what God is saying is not true, even if every human being on earth lines up on one side of the issue with God being on the other side, God is the one who can be trusted. It doesn't matter if the president, every political leader, every scientist, every corporate CEO, every tech billionaire, every Nobel Prize winner, you can go on and on and on. It doesn't matter who is saying it. If they are contradicting God, let man be a liar because God is true. God is the one who's going to be proven right. William Borden was the heir to a million-dollar fortune. Now, this was not the Borden milk fortune. It was another fortune. But uh, he was a, a very wealthy young man. His father was a millionaire. He was a graduate of Harvard, and he gave up several lucrative job offers to travel to China at the age of 25 to be a missionary. Now, he wanted to work with Muslims in China, so on his way to China, he stopped in Egypt to learn the Arabic language. When he arrived in Egypt, within a month, he died of spinal meningitis. Now, many people look at his life and say, what a waste. In fact, some told him that while he was alive. You know, his Harvard classmates went on to enjoy prosperous, successful lives. How do you think William Borden would have felt about his choices? Do you think he would have felt cheated? 
that he didn't get what God had promised him. But we have six words that he left written in his personal Bible. These words are no reserves, no retreats, no regrets. William Borden was one who knew the truth of what the psalmist tells us. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn. Your vindication will be like the noonday sun. So, in conclusion, we look at this psalm and it tells us, A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. We have a lot of trouble understanding this idea of meek. It's interesting, there are only two men in the Bible who are described as being meek, and that's Moses and Jesus. Now, we usually think of meek as being insignificant, as being weak, without power. But the classical Greek word that's used to translate meekness, it's the word for a horse that's been tamed or bridled. So meekness is the idea of an animal of great power, but one that is trained in obedience. Uh, in the words of Carolyn Arende, the meek are those who trust God to be God. They're not trying to do his job. So meekness is the idea that we allow God to be in control. We let God determine who does and who does not succeed. We do our part. We trust God to do his part. Uh, back in the early 1980s, there was a rallying cry among those who were working under President Ronald Reagan. They came out with the slogan, Let Reagan be Reagan. And the idea was they felt there were people around President Reagan who were trying to remake him into something that he was not. They wanted Reagan to be their type of president rather than allowing Reagan to be who he really was. And how many times do we try to do this with God? We try to remake God in the ways that we want him to act. We try to have him do what we want him to do, to have God meet our expectations. But the meek person surrenders and allows God to be God. They stop trying to be God, and they let God be the God that he always intends to be. So this week, or this month, this coming year, whenever you see the wicked prosper and you begin to feel like you may be being left behind, let go and let God be God. Put it into His hands. Trust Him to deal with the situation as He sees fit. And He promises us we will be vindicated. So, I hope we take these lessons to heart. Thank you for being with us today. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths that you've shown us. And we ask that you would help us, Lord, to put them to work in our lives. In your name, amen.